Good evening. It's a real delight to be here uh, at St. Paul's Cathedral this evening. And can I offer you a very warm welcome uh, under the dome and also to those who are joining us online. Uh, my name is Sarah Mullally and I have the privilege of being the Bishop of London. Uh, this is the first in-person uh, learning event uh, that has taken part um, for really just over two years. Uh, so we're really delighted that you've been able to join us here this evening. Uh, and it's just so exciting to be back here in person. I'd like to talk a little bit about how this evening is going to work. Uh, in a moment, I'll introduce our panels, panel, who I'm delighted have been able to give up their evening to be with us here. Uh, and then we're going to have a time of discussion uh, and conversation. Then the last part of the evening will be an opportunity for you to ask questions of our panel members. And we will uh, finish promptly at 8 o'clock. To ask a question, there are two ways of doing it. First of all, you can use Twitter, using the hashtag, a new beginning, and tagging in at St. Paul's Learning. So hashtag, a new beginning, and tagging in at St. Paul's Learning. For those of you who are here and prefer the conventional way, uh, you will be able to write down your question, and if you hold your hand in the air, your question will be collected. Uh, do keep them brief and uh, also legible. That will help uh, the team, who will then forward the questions uh, to me uh, here at the panel. The title of this evening's event is A New Beginning, Recovering Well After the Pandemic. The Diocese of London has been delighted to be able to partner with CCLA to support communities across London, uh, north of the river, to do exactly that. Uh, we are pursuing our ambition to train the equivalent of one person per par parish in mental health first aid training. Uh, and I'm very grateful to the support of CCLA to enable us to do this. This evening, I'm joined by three distinguished speakers who have kindly agreed to share their insights from their respective sectors on what it might mean to recover well in our current context. Baroness Deborah Bull is Vice President of Communities and National Engagement and a Senior Advisory Fellow for Culture at King's College London University. Prior to joining King's in 2012, she enjoyed a long career and very successful career in the arts, first as a performer and then as a creative leader, writer and commentator. She also sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Stephanie Flanders has been a senior executive editor for economics at Bloomberg News and head of Bloomberg Economics since 2017. As an economist, journalist and advisor, she has previously held roles at a variety of settings, including JP Morgan, the BBC and the US Treasury, the Financial Times and the London Business School. And finally, we're joined by Victor Adewole, who is a social and business entrepreneur. He was chief ex executive officer of the social care charity Turning Point for over 20 years and has advised government on housing, employment and training, health 
and public service. He currently chairs uh, Social Enterprise UK and the NHS Confederation. He is also a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Would you join with me in welcoming them this evening? I suspect that few of us uh, will have yet to understand the impact of the pandemic on either us as individuals or on our communities or as a faith leader on our faith uh, groups. But I do have a sense that we are regathering ourselves, but there remains many questions. Amidst the suffering of the pandemic, deep questions were asked about our values our priorities, principles, and our commitments. Now, for some aspects of life, it are returning to what seems to be something that we can recognize from the pre-pandemic patterns, whilst others are in, uh, still feel a sense of fear. There are those that feel that they have been forgotten. There are those that are anxious and continue to grieve. Can we rediscover some of, what, of that hopefulness about being able to reflect and change in the light of recent events, profound and shattering collective experiences? So to begin our evening this evening, I'm going to start by asking Stephanie a question. I wonder whether you could sh um, share your reflections on how London can be a place of economic flourishing uh, for all its people, and whether our response to the pandemic has illuminated a path for a better future. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you very much, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be back here and to be uh, reminded from previous events what fun it is just to look up while you're talking. <laughs> um, I was... I had the um, good fortune uh, just before the pandemic uh, began of having read Robert McFarlane's book, Underland, which is wonderful as so many of his books are, but it had a particularly resonant concept in it, which I kind of carried with me um, for, the, for the months after that, which was this sense of this, this phrase, unburials. And it's a very particular, it's not his phrase, but it's one that gets used now in the Arctic Circle, for example, communities where global warming is changing the landscape and is unburying things that had been buried 100 years ago, maybe even longer, including dead animals, but also other things um, that previously had just lurked under the surface and that we were not aware of. And it felt very much like the pandemic unburied an awful lot of divisions and challenges and weaknesses in our society or in our economy that we, in some cases, knew were there, but um, were unable to ignore any longer when we saw how they were affecting um, people as a result of the pandemic. So I'm an economist, uh, and I think I'm here to inject the economics um, hopefully with an eye for uh, social and, and, and ethical objectives too, but just to, just to talk about it in economic terms, what to me was unburied was um, the weaknesses of an economic model that we've had under both Labour and Conservative governments for uh, 
uh, at least 20 years, focusing on very high employment, which we welcomed, relatively low unemployment rates, but employment growth primarily being in low-skill, low-productivity service sector jobs, which of course we saw evaporate, particularly in the centre of London and the centre of cities um, in, the, in, the, in COVID. Also, obviously, extreme health inequalities, which have accentuated the way, um, the unequal way that the virus hit communities and different parts of uh, the population. And finally, very over-centralized government and economy. And we tend to think of that in terms of the north-south divide. And of course, this government has taken up the cause of leveling up. We can probably debate later how successfully that's, that's uh, being approached. But one thing I realized when I was doing a, something for the BBC on the north-south divide, I did a short film which was entitled provocatively, should, should Britain let London go? And it was sort of the idea that um, it was a way of making the north-south divide seem a bit more exciting. It's one way of looking at it. But it was also this genuine perception of many people in the city, particularly um, expats who've come to work in the financial sector, perhaps, who had this approach to the UK, which was, oh, great city, not sure about the country attached. And I was trying to sort of dig into that and say, okay, what, what would it mean for, for the rest of Britain to be sort of freed from this all-consuming, all-powerful capital? And the conclusion I came to was that it wasn't really about North-South. It really was about this over-centralization. And actually London, many communities of London also lost out from this over-centralization because it infantilizes the local institutions that could act and help to bring a more coherent economic and social agenda to bear on the ground. You know, it's very hard for, people, for, for Whitehall. I'm not sure, you know, Whitehall doesn't really understand what's going on in Barking and Dagenham, let alone um, the North, because it's not their, it, their prime to think about other things and be motivated by other things. So... That was the other piece of it for me that seemed to be unburied, was that, that very imbalanced structure of society between the local, local actors, local levers that we needed to rely on so much during the pandemic. Um, you know, in many ways that they were undeveloped, those levers, and certainly, and people, and at the centre found it hard to trust those local actors to to take action in response to pandemic. And in many cases, I think we've got some positive examples now of where local leaders, local authorities came into their own in protecting communities and helping people bear the, the burden of the pandemic. But for me, I think it's those sort of three things. It's sort of the model of economics that we had, the sort of economic model, clearly the health inequalities, but underpinning that just an, an over-centralized view of uh, approach to the country, which has been, been with us forever. It's been a very long-standing UK problem. Um, and out of that, I think, you know, we, we can discuss, but I think there are opportunities that come out of those, those failings that were revealed, you know, a long-term direction that we could take, which, again, for me, I think would be part, would, would need to start with empowering those local communities.
So let me leave it there, but I know we have plenty of time to get into some of these things. Thank you very much. That's really helpful. I do like your term unburied. I think that's really helpful. And, and certainly I think we'll come back to some of those points that you pick up when we begin to think about so, so what is possible uh, moving forward. But thank you very much. Victor, can I turn to you? At times during the pandemic, we've seen, um, we've observed great acts of kindness, neighbourlessness, activism. How can we shape uh, civil society and public policy to harness and foster the values that we've seen in our community as we move forward? The first thing is that 179,000 people died in the UK as a result of COVID pandemic. Now, whether we... That changes things. Everybody knew somebody who had suffered, had lost somebody, um, often in great shock, great pain, great distress. 22 million people actually got the virus. And um, there are 2 million people, or ne nearly 2 million people, with long-term effects of the virus. And as Stephanie said, actually, the inequalities and inequities within the health system, the economic system, the political system, were already there, actually. What the coronavirus did is that it drew a red line around them so that it could not be ignored. It could not be ignored that these things were happening to some people more than others. And yes, there were great acts of kindness. Um, it, there's, a, there's something, I don't know, fundamental about not just this country, but human spirit, I guess, in times of great stress, both the good comes out and the not so good. <laughs> and we, we have a choice as to what happens. And we saw some amazing acts of kindness. People didn't look up so much. They looked out to their communities. People delivered food parcels. They ensured that the elderly and the infirm got vaccinated. They, they knocked on people's doors and ensured they didn't suffer alone. All these things happened, and they happened across the country, and they were very powerful markers of who we really are as humans. And they remind us that actually the fundamental, the reason why we've survived as a species is not just because we compete with each other, it's because we actually collaborate with each other. That's why we've succeeded. And it reminded us all of that fact. But, or and, as we come out of the crisis, at least the conscious, you know, being locked up and, and the changes, it seems to me that we have to remember something which is kind of fundamental, which is kindness is lovely. I'm all for it. It really is a wonderful thing. But it's not equally distributed. So while there were acts of kindness, they didn't happen everywhere, and they didn't happen to all the people that needed those acts of kindness to happen to them, which is why we have things like public services um, and services to the public provided by all kinds of organizations. So I established an organization called Collaborate, which does just that. It's aimed at helping communities 
design services that they can use and work with that are collaborative. Um, and it seems to me that one thing, the, the, the thing we've got to do is notice that these communities of kindness happened, but not assume that they're going to happen everywhere for everyone. Kindness is not equally distributed. It's one of the reasons why we have a welfare state, why we have an NHS, because we realise that kindness was not equally distributed. That's the first thing. The second thing we've got to do is 179,000 people died, and I think we owe it to every single one of those people to learn. It's not a case of just going back to normal. How can 179,000 people die and we go back to normal? There is no normal. We, we learn and we adapt and we change, not least because we, need, we owe those people something. We owe them. So for me, the, the learning is that we have to design services that meet the needs of the, pe of the people who are at the sharp end of the inverse care law. And for those people that don't know what the inverse care law is it was designed by a chap called Julian Tudor Hart. I won't go into the history of it, but it states this very simply, certainly in health and care, but it applies to lots of other areas. Those people in need of services the most tend to get them the least. So we need to learn if when we design services, we design services for those people. Because you know what, if we design services for those people first, we all benefit. The, 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 the learning piece and I think the last thing that we should do and we should really I think it's important that places like this um, keep reminding us of what happened you know I think it's important that we remember that 179,000 people died 20 million people got the disease and 2 million people still have it still have the effects of it, not just for sort of maudling reasons, but because it holds us in our humanity and it holds us in our economy and it holds us in our learning. Now, it makes us re remember what happened and what we have to do to honour those, those memories. So that's the way I think we, we move forward. And I see signs of this in places like Essex and Test Valley, where local authorities, you mentioned local authorities, adop adopted new ways of designing services, um, distributed power to the people who lived there, started to build trust and design new ways of delivering services during the pandemic that are then adapting to deliver new services in different ways post-pandemic. Um, we, we've learned that the private sector is not divorced from the public sector. It is integrated and interrelated in a way that cannot be undone. Um, the way we work, the way we need to work, has to change. It is changing whether we like it or not. So, the one thing that's come out of the pandemic is, in some ways, the fact that we're all here, it, it's driven us to hope for a a better society, a better vision. It's demanding of us that we, that we learn and that we hold community and that we remember. I'm now going to move on to Deborah. Uh, being in, in London, Deborah, as I am, I'm very conscious that, in fact, those in the creative industries, those who contribute to art and, art and culture, 
um, probably suffered some of the most, but I also recognise that actually the contribution that culture and art makes to our own being, uh, our own well-being, is enormous. So I wondered whether you could give your thoughts really on the contribution of art and culture, uh, and also the most Im uh, and their contribution in a sense to the future flourishing of London. I think I'm very struck already by some of the uh, commonalities the themes that, that, that have been introduced so far that, that I will pick up on. Um, and I thought I'd say something about the role of arts and culture more broadly, and then perhaps come to the impact of the pandemic and perhaps some opportunities arising from it. So uh, London is one of the greatest creative and cultural cities in the world. Uh, we've got galleries, theatres, museums, cathedrals. We have 10 major concert halls, four UNESCO World Heritage Sites. We've got over 4,000 pubs, and 325 public libraries and theatres, um, uh, too numerous to mention. So you could really say that arts and culture are part of London's DNA. And I think that means I could come at this question economically, socially, or indeed culturally. Um, and I think it is worth talking about the economic contribution of arts and culture because it has been so important um, to the city. Before COVID hit, one in every six jobs in the capital was a creative one. One in six jobs, which is quite extraordinary. And uh, the cultural experience, including heritage, are a major driver for tourism. So again, pre-COVID, 90% of the visitors to this cathedral were international tourists. I, mean, I think that is, is right to say. Um, and we know that uh, tourists uh, come here because of the arts and culture. Um, so there is an economic contribution to the city, not just in the tickets sold, but of course in the spillover, because tourists stay in hotels, they eat meals, they go to, our, they go to shops. Um, so there is, a, there is a, a, a massive contribution to the economy and to jobs, and therefore to the well-being of Londoners um, through, through arts and culture. It also does mean there is potential for culture to contribute to the economic recovery. Again, pre-COVID, and we can't assume that things will go back, but the creative industries were one of the fastest growing sectors. They were growing jobs at five times the rate of the UK economy, um, uh, sorry, three times the, the, the rate of the, the economy, um, and contributing a massive amount to, 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 to GVA. Um, so, so there is the potential for, for creativity to add to our economic uh, recovery. But aside from that economic contribution, there is also a lot of evidence around uh, the impact of cultural engagement on individuals, on society, and on the city. And when you start to think about these impacts, it can sound a bit Pollyanna-ish, because I could run across the whole gamut. But these are things that are uh, increasingly evident. So if we think about um, health and well-being, particularly around mental health, the potential for arts engagement to deal uh, with issues around social isolation, 
isolation, around loneliness, around anxiety and depression, which is why social prescribing, you know, is now uh, well recognised within the, in, in the NHS. And you, you know, you, it, your doctor could prescribe you uh, a course of arts classes or music lessons as a way of dealing with some of the issues associated with your with your well-being. We know about arts and culture's role in urban regeneration. We know that arts uh, arts businesses uh, venues make places nicer to live, and we know they make them safer to live because, of course, typically um, they are operating at different times of the day, so the streets become safer because there are venues that are, that, that are open alongside them. We have really strong examples of where arts engagement allows communities to come together around differing views, so they can provide a forum to safely debate differing opinions, um, they can provide places where language doesn't matter, where faiths can be put aside, uh, differences of faith can be put aside, and the, the experience of creating and making together can create uh, common, um, common experiences. We know that arts engagement can help to foster good democratic processes, so there's good evidence that uh, engaging in arts is, it will make you more uh, likely to vote, to engage with democratic processes, to have the tools to debate and discuss and disagree uh, with people who come from uh, who have different uh, different opinions. And then, of course, and it's not last, but there is the intrinsic value of culture within itself, the experience of enjoying performance, of being moved by performance, of exploring yourself, learning about yourself uh, through the cultural experience, and of learning to understand others. So culture provides a way to put yourself into other people's shoes, to see the world from a different perspective, all of which helps you to grow as an individual. So economically, socially, culturally, there are benefits to London and to Londoners. And I think what COVID showed for many of us, um, art became a way to come together, to, uh, to, to, uh, to deal with our own isolation, to deal with uh, our own um, need to express. Um, all of these things uh, uh, emerged during COVID. We saw a new potential for digital reach and connectivity. So arts organizations, indeed churches, pivoted incredibly quickly to be able to reach their communities in the digital environment. We also saw, and I'm struck here, Victor's point about looking out and not looking up. We saw local arts organizations truly pivot to serve the needs of their local communities. So they they didn't say, what do we do as an organization? They said, what do our communities need from us? So they started to produce uh, creative tools, educational uh, packs to send to children in their homes. Um, they started to develop, they created food banks. They, they, they had drop-in sessions when it was possible, um, really showing creativity and resilience within their locality. Um, but I think, and this comes to a point that, that, that Victor and, and indeed Stephanie raised, what we also saw was the result of a stubborn and persistent set of inequalities, which means that not everybody has access to the, all these benefits that arts and culture can bring. So just as kindness is not equally distributed, nor is arts and culture. And the notion of levelling up, as if London is you know, paved with gold, 
uh, throughout its, uh, its, its, you know, 50 sort of miles of reach or whatever, however much it is now, um, just isn't true. There are boroughs in London that are amongst the most deprived in the country. Um, and uh, those people don't have access to arts and culture in the way that, that some do. And that gets reflected not only in who gets to take part, but then it gets reflected in who gets to work in the sector, whose voices are heard, who gets to create work, whose work gets put on the stages, which lives are reflected back to you, the audience. So these uh, inequalities are really persistent. And in COVID, just as Victor said, we saw disabled artists were disproportionately affected, people from ethnic minorities, working class, marginalized communities, disproportionately affected. Very often, those people were in the front-facing roles. They were ushers. They were um, the box office staff. Those people were laid off because the theatres were closed. Um, there was a massive impact on freelancers. Many people start their career in the arts as a freelancer. Um, and a massive impact because the uh, support schemes worked brilliantly if you were employed, um, uh, but they didn't work so well for freelancers. So as we build back, there is an opportunity opportunity that we build back differently. We don't go back to the status quo ante, but we say, how can we look for a more equitable distribution of these uh, riches, these genuine riches in every sense? How can we look for more partnerships between culture and health providers, culture and education providers, culture and social services, so that we can really address these, these long-term impacts of the pandemic on mental health, the educational challenges for those kids that missed two years of schooling? And how can we build on that deeper community engagement which we saw locally uh, arts organizations turning to face their communities in a way they never had before and saying, what do you need from us and how can we help deliver it? So I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Deborah. I've been struck by the commonalities. Yes. Um, and Stephanie started off by talking about the unburied uh, and that sense in which the inequalities is clearly a theme, whether it is the inequality uh, of health, the in inequality of kindness, or the inequality of access to arts. And it seems a, a theme that uh, is running through. And Stephanie, I wondered whether, just coming back to, you talked about the inequality in health, but I, um, and it may well be there's a connection here, but I was very struck in London by the inequality of wealth and extreme poverty. And that became unburied during uh, COVID. And, and I suppose I just would be interested in you, is with um, what is, seems to be increasingly polarized society, how do we begin to address those, in, uh, those disparities of wealth? So I think there's, there's been a number of um, Governments over the years have sort of put their toes in the water with this kind of thing, and it's almost always been politically catastrophic for them because, unfortunately, people have um, the same way in which a very egalitarian parent can still want to make sure that their kids get slightly better education and do slightly better in the workplace. Um, the same thing applies to people's um, wealth and the desire to pass it on. And that is such a sort of immovable force in politics and in human nature, I fear, 
um, that it's a it's extremely hard to tackle this, and obviously it's intergenerational and transfer of wealth that is you know increasingly responsible for the vast bulk of what you're talking about. So I I think for many years any economist would have said you the first thing you have to do is to try and find a way to do asset-based wealth um, a taxation of some kind to just begin to take a bite out of some of this inequality. And it is, it's, one has to accept that the political obstacles are enormous. I think you can still chip away at it with much better taxation of housing in the UK, although that in itself has proved to be a bit of a lightning rod for um, many governments, even, even again nibbling at the edges of that. One experiment of Gordon Brown's time, which I actually thought did go with the spirit of a lot of the research, but was also something that I wish had been taken more seriously by, by governments that came afterwards, was actually um, the Child Trust Fund. And it was sort of capturing that idea that, yes, that the big inequalities that you see between households, you know, in just orders of magnitude, and they've become so much larger over the last few years, um, between the top 1% and the top 1% of the 1% and you know one can go into all the different levels. But when you look at life chances uh, disparities, the difference that comes from whether or not you have enough money to pay the rent for a month if you lose your job is probably the single big, most decisive factor in whether someone actually just falls out of society, mm -hmm. becomes homeless, um, and all of the research suggests if you just, you know, part of the social wealth that middle class children have is not really about the value of their homes, although obviously that also helps them when they're trying to find somewhere to live. It's the fact that they have something to fall back on, anything to fall back on when they lose their job. And they don't have that, there isn't that spiral that you get into when you lose your job, you then can't pay your rent then if you don't have somewhere to live, it's really hard to get another job because you haven't got any base from which to do any interviews and it, the thing spirals. Now, uh, um, others on the panel and probably in the audience have a much closer understanding of those, those dynamics and what can be done to support them. But I think, you know, as an economist, it can be quite a small amount that helps. And the Child Trust Fund was actually about giving every child just that cushion to fall back on, even if it was quite small. It'd be, you know, it could be a few hundred pounds. And one thing I was always struck by as economics editor of the BBC as the, these wealth figures, the, the household wealth data would come out with a terrible lag, but they would always show that at least a third of the population had negative household wealth, had no household wealth at all, no positive assets. And that if you're that kind of household and then you have bad luck, you're very close to having um, a very long, that, that bad luck can then lead to a, really a, ru a ruined life. I mean, a, a much, much diminished life chances. So you asked me specific, I think there's, there's lots of other things that we can do um, around investing in social infrastructure, um, networks for people, more, more interconnected. Victor mentioned, uh, or um, Deborah mentioned the social prescribing. You know, I think making those connections between economics and health um, in an individual, in a social setting, I think can be very important. But just on the question of wealth, I think small amounts, yes, the wealth quantitatively is 
situated in the top 1% and those where the really big gaps are. But the back gaps in terms of human experience and what really makes the difference actually can be quite small. It might be just a few hundred pounds. Thank you. I'm going to come to Victor in a minute to ask whether he'd want to make a contribution to that question as well. But just to remind you, if you'd like to ask a question, do use Twitter at hashtag a new beginning and then tagging in at St Paul's Learning or just write it on a bit of paper and wave it in the air and somebody will collect it. Victor, do you want to make a reflection on well, adding mean, to that disparity question? Well, the disparity... So I chair the NHS Confederation, which is the largest representative organisation for healthcare leaders in the UK. And Stephanie has made, made a very good point. I talked about the inverse care law, but just to give, bring it back to London. In London, um, a woman in Barking and Dagenham has an active life expectancy, i.e. that's the expectancy which you can still be running around and you know, physically fit, of 55. Right? That's when things start to break down. In Richmond-upon-Thames, it's over 70. Now, that's not sustainable. Not sustainable economically, it's not sustainable morally, it's not sustainable. So, we're going to have to change... <laughs> We're going to have to change the way we deliver um, health and other services. And we're going to have to respect equity. Now, equity is not the same as equality. <laughs> the woman in Barking and Dagenham needs a different kind of service to the woman in Richmond-upon-Thames. Right? And we, we, have to, we have to address, address that fact. But to, your, to the point about wealth, I'm always struck by the way in which the debate around wealth is often captured by the wealthiest. Have you noticed that? It seems an odd... I'm always struck by the notion that if you are worth billions, you don't need billions, but having them almost becomes a pathology in itself. It becomes a kind of... It becomes self-fulfilling in and of itself. And I'm, I'm not so sure... Well, I'm pretty certain that's not sustainable either, because we... I mean... <laughs> The biggest challenge we have isn't the pandemic, it's the next 10 years, because that's about what we've got to turn the planet around. I mean, this is not, it's not sustainable to carry on with the same economic model that we've had for the last 10 years. It's going to have to change. And we, we all know that, don't we? So in London, I did a piece of work for the last May. It was the London Fairness Commission. We talked to about 6,000 people and I remember concluding that in London, London is such a wonderful sort of space for examining the disparities between incredible wealth, I mean, astonishing wealth, and staggering poverty, right? And London, it's a workhouse for the poor. It, it, it really is. If you can't get a job, if you can't get access to the means by which you get a job, it might as well be eight, the 18th century with sun and iPads. That's London. It's the workhouse for the poor. For the middle classes, it's a treadmill. And, and, and what I, I note your point about you know, the middle classes having something to fall back on, but it all depends on how bad the economy gets, right? Housing crash, the fact that your sons and daughters can't afford to pay the rent, or if they can, it's taken up 40% of their income, and they've still got debts to repay, it becomes a treadmill for the middle classes. And frankly, it's a bit of a playground for the rich. I mean, that's... That's what it is. And it seems to me that we have to do a number of things. One, we have to not accept that it's necessarily human nature for it to be this way. 
It hasn't always been this way, and nor does it have to be. I think we need visionary politics. Politics is fundamentally about vision. It's not just about, what's it called, the, um, the miserable profession. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can't be. Right? It can't be about that. The dismal, the dismal science. The dismal science. The dismal, I'd argue and it's with, not even a science. Uh, exactly. So I don't think it is a science, no. So it's, so it's not a, just about the dismal science. It is about vision. It's about values. It's about what we hold dear. And it's about hope for a better future. And if we don't have that, then we, we have the danger of basically accepting things as they are. And if we do accept as, things as we are, we're risking not just London and our social infrastructure, but the planet. It's not, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but I think it might, except what I've just said is evidence-based. So I think we do need a, redistrib a redistributive model of wealth. We need a better way of doing business. I chair the Social Enterprise um, UK, 100,000 social enterprises, fastest growing form of business in the, in the country. For every 100,000 invested, we create three jobs, whereas normal businesses create about 0 0.001. We, um, we provide more tax than the top 11 companies in this country put together. Those aren't my stats, they're the Treasury stats. And we contribute more to them. So there are better ways of doing business. So I suppose in conclusion, what I'd say is we have to demand a better vision and then a better economy to drive it. We have to demand equity, not just equality, and we have to see that unless we get equity, we all suffer. It's not just a case of the poor. And in London, we need to pay attention to the way we do business, not just the amount of business that we do. Thank you, Victor. That's uh, very helpful. Deborah, you talked about the inequalities in art and about the need to, to change that. How practically, though, do you do that? I'm so struck by what I've what I've been um, l listening to here, and by the the you know the the perception uh, out there that you know that that it is London versus the rest of the country, and 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 actually that is that is so flawed, isn't it? We we do have so many issues that we need to to address in in London. Um, in terms of thinking particularly about, sorry, access to the arts and, and, and creative industries. Um, there are a series of barriers um, within the system that need to be, be broken down. Um, and it, it, of course it starts in the home, but you can't assume that every child has, has access to arts in the home, but you do have children captive through the education system from a relatively early age. But, uh, but arts, as, as the more pressures have been put on the education system to include different things in the, in the curriculum, and as different governments have had different views about the values of the arts, um, the arts have been pushed out of the curriculum. So uh, as you, you move up the year system, you will do less and less art, unless, of course, you go to private schools, independent fee-paying schools, in which case uh, they will sell themselves on the quality of their arts provision and the and the um, and, and the, the facilities that they have, their theatres, their orchestras, their their painting studios, and so on. So already in the education system, you see that some children are being educated through 
in and with art, and those are three different things, by the way. It's not just learning the names of the great masters. It's about learning about yourself through, through your own creativity. Um, whereas in the state system, unless you're very lucky, you will have decreasing amounts of art as the curriculum forces you to, you know, things that are going to get you a job. Um, we now see pressures on higher education that there will be less subsidy for arts courses. Then you have a London effect because so much of the opportunities in the creative industries, and when I say the creative industries, I'm talking very broadly from arts and culture, theater, music, through to publishing, uh, filmmaking, and so on. So much of that, those sectors cluster in London and the Southeast, so we come onto the housing problem. So um, uh, many, uh, there's too much use of unpaid internships still in the sector, startup jobs are very, very low salaries. I talked about freelancers, so you can't take a long-term commitment on a rent because your job's only three months. Um, these, this kind of financial precarity in the sector means that you will probably only be able to launch yourself into that career if you can rely on the bank mm. of mum and dad mm. and the spare room that you, you know, grew up in. Mm. So you see already that there is another set of barriers that mean unless you've got those resources to fall back on, so you can take that great three-month job as the you know unpaid intern to whoever filmmaker is you know your dad knows you can take that because at the end of three months if you haven't got another job guess what you can still raid the family fridge now if you've come down from Hull if you've come down from Bradford for that job what are you going to do? So um, those, uh, and, and then of course, you, you, there's a series of other barriers which come around the interesting concept of sort of cultural capital. So, so how do you how do you know what to say in interview? Um, how do you know what to say at the water cooler? How do you know whether you wear a tie or not? How do you know whether it's okay to turn up in jeans? All of those things, uh, which are the sort of the the, the 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 cultural capital within certain industries, if you haven't learned them through parental influence, through your education, then you're again disadvantaged. Will you actually get on in that industry? And it's not an industry that's particularly kind uh, to people with caring responsibilities. Um, so all, uh, all the way through, there are systemic barriers. Some of those can be, in, in, uh, can be changed through policy. You could change education through policy. You absolutely could. Um, you could change it through stricter regulation on it, you know, un use of unpaid internships and, and fair salaries. Um, the housing problem, I genuinely don't know how you solve that. Um, but I think being, being, let's be positive, I think there is great potential for partnerships across, uh, across uh, London organizations and regional organizations because there is, there is mutual learning that could go in both directions. So you could, you could create opportunities there for people to, to shadow and partner. But really it's those systemic barriers that need to be need to be addressed in order to iron out some of these inequalities about who gets in and who gets on. So, Victor, um, um, just before you, I mean, you, you may want to pick this up. So I'm struck um, by the analysis and the fact that there are some systemic changes that need to happen. But, but Victor, what are the sort of things around the disparities that we could be doing in our communities to make a difference? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I'm always struck by something that I think it was uh, Churchill who, who, who said when he was he advised to close all the theatres in the war, he, he turned around and said, what are we fighting for? And I think we have to remember, you know, what is the economy for? <laughs> the economy is for 
the spiritual growth of everyone, really. And we do that actually through the arts. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect symbiotic relationship between the economy and the arts, which we forget at our peril. So this is what we do if we want to change it. Talent is everywhere. Opportunity isn't. So there's a couple of things, one of which I'm, I've done. We need to create spaces that attract talent and give them the opportunity. And we need to put those places where the talent is most likely to be um, um, cut off from the opportunity. So in our poorest um, communities, with our, with our poorest children, um, and uh, if just down the road from here, there's a, there's a place called Talent House. Um, and it's a place for young people who have talent, but lack the social capital um, I remember not knowing which... I remember my own experience of going to a dinner in my 20s and having all the knives and forks laid out and thinking, crikey, you know, I've only got two pairs of hands and my girlfriend at the time getting very annoyed with me because um, I just didn't know, right? And that stuff is... It, it kills confidence. So you need to build confidence as well as support the talent. So there's a place, talent house, sugar mills, that cost four million quid and... We need to put pressure on some of those arts institutions that fund arts infrastructure, but don't fund the gap, that don't, but don't fill the gap between talent and opportunity. And I tell you, if you do that, not only do you build the arts, but you build the economy. I absolutely passionately agree with what you're saying. I think the, the, the arts drive ideas, and the ideas drive business and economy, and, you know, it, it's... it's, it's we are losing something every day we don't fund artistic talent and every day we deny young people and it is by and large young people the opportunity to express themselves and particularly those young people who are furthest away from access who have the greatest talent it can be done it should be done and i think we'll regret it if we don't do it deborah did you want to well, come well back? i was just inspired by by, by, by Victor and by your very pragmatic question is what, what can we do? And there are things we can do. We can make sure that we, um, we stop giving preferential access to people we know, um, that, that we advertise jobs yep. openly, fairly, and in places where different people will see the adverts. That Absolutely. we maybe consider sort of blind casting, as it were. Yep. You know, don't don't have don't have names which which can give people away and can trigger unconscious biases that we we, we wish they didn't have. And if you do need to give a summer internship to your neighbour's son or your godson or whatever, then give two more through a local charity absolutely to correct. people that absolutely wouldn't have it. And every time you get invited to speak at a public school, a private school, a fee-paying school, okay, do it if you want, but go to a state school and say, can I come and give totally a talk agree. on careers? Because totally actually agree. it is astonishing how, how many schools will just not think to invite yeah us to go and give a talk on careers to, yeah. to young people yeah. but you can bet that you will get those invitations all the time mm. from schools that have the confidence to do it so there are things we can all do and it is about just checking every Spot time on. On. it's really helpful yeah. stephanie did you want uh, to come in let me come back with a little bit of optimism um <laughs> because i listen to this and i do think i mean a lot of the things obviously um that deborah and victor are saying is true which is a good start um but <laughs> 
I do actually think it's a conversation you could have had 10 years ago, and I think now there is a very widespread recognition of many of the elements that you're talking about. And they're definitely not solved. No. But, for example, every institution I've ever worked at now has very strict, in, strict rules for not being allowed to... You know, I get approached for sort of internships and everything else. At Bloomberg, we have the only, I think, major internship programme um, of, you know, several dozen in each country that we work in. Uh, or at least uh, probably about 100 in the US and then several dozen here and also in the rest of the world. And there is a lottery for a small number of, um, of those, which is for anybody across the company, anybody who's related to anyone in the company or is a, or is a godchild or whatever, anything else. Everything else is, is we were completely unable to do anything. That was the same when I was at the BBC. It was the same when I was at JP Morgan. So I think that, and in the art sector, there has been a lot of pressure to try and, change the idea and of course there's still people who get in for short internships there's there are definitely it is definitely easier to take a job in the arts if in london if you come from a middle class background absolutely true just in your, what your point about the spare room but i think those kind of practices at major institutions and places where people can gather those that kind of experience has changed i think the growth of apprenticeships has helped a lot of com companies bring in people who are not graduates and are not from the sort of classic um, institutions that they've tended to bring in for those kind of entry level, very useful jobs. Um, the Treasury is, you know, the most recent <clears throat> to introduce an apprenticeship for economists in the Treasury, and that's school leavers who've not um, gone to gone to university and got traditional um, qualifications. So I think I think those things um, have changed. My former colleague, Robert Peston, set up Speakers for Schools, which has completely changed. I mean, he and I both had the same experience when we were at the BBC, that we got loads of requests from really posh schools, which, by the way, I didn't um, take. Um, and I would try and... But everything I got from a state school, I would say yes to. But he was much more dynamic. That was a sort of passive approach that I took um, of favoring state schools, but he set up Speakers for Schools, which is entirely based on, on attracting large number of professional people who sign up to go to uh, <coughs> speak at a state school about their experience, their career. Um, and the only condition is that people have to do a speech a year. I mean, have to go and do a talk a year. And uh, in my case, when I do them, I try and make them when I'm outside of London, you know, places that don't necessarily attract lots of speakers. But I think, again, that has changed. I think most, a large number of state schools um, have joined the Speakers for School network, and I know that they have tens of thousands of, of, of talks that happen every year. Come on. Um, and sorry, and just on the arts, I would say the Let's Create, which is the new kind of mission statement for the Arts Council was entirely based on what you're talking about. And I say this as, a, as someone who's I, I chair an arts company that's been grappling with all the conditions that you now have to jump through to get funding from the Arts Council. But, um, and there's certain complaints that the word art isn't mentioned very much in the new mission statement, but the involvement, inclusion, making sure that you have to say which postcodes you've touched with your activity in order to get funding from the Arts Council now. So I would just inject, I think a, a lot of these things are being recognised. Of course, they're not being solved, but I would say it is reflected in some of the things you now see in the world in day-to-day -day practice. Can I just be very clear about something? Uh, 
I'm not pessimistic. I really am not pessimistic. I, I am far... In fact, I think everybody in this room is far too so lucky to be pessimistic. <laughs> but I, I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic. But I think we, the one thing I would ask you to be is impatient. I just don't think it's good enough to, to where we are now. Mm. You know, I'm not, not, I'm not denying anything that Stephanie's just said, but it's just not good enough. It's not fast enough. It's not focused enough, and you could and should be doing more from the position that you're in. Frankly, Bloomberg, lovely organisation, but why, do you, why have a lottery at all? Well, that's like, I don't I mean, even know how many it is. It's just like... But it's like it's, I think it's... Because it is actually an organisation like, that has it. an enormous number of employees from lots yeah. of different backgrounds. Yeah, but, but I don't... <laughs> as, I, I mentioned that as a, against Bloomberg, but yeah. they actually have... Okay. 99% oh, of these, yeah. I think it's even only the summer internship, it's not the official it programme. Matter. If Mr Bloomberg's listening, stop it. Apply the Rooney rule, ask, your que ask the question, if you don't have a diverse panel for any job, the person actually re responsible for that recruitment should be asked why. All the things that you've said well, we should, that, should be applied. That's a, that's a whole just separate stop it. thing. Just stop it, just stop, just stop it. I mean, it's, it's not good. It's not good for decision-making. It's not good for... Just stop it. These are, these are, these are one-month summer <laughs> internships. They're not the main programme. But it's program. the signal. But it's the signal <laughs> okay. it sends. We do. The diversity thing that you just said, we do. That is if, absolutely if fundamental 16, to our hiring. If I wanted to get... If I wanted a, a month at Bloomberg is worth a 12 months at virtually anywhere else, and people will game the system to get that month for their kid, I'm saying just stop it. You can't game a system if it's a, if it's a lottery. Leave the future. Of course you can. I think, uh, Victor, your comment about Just being impatient um, is an important one. I, I mean, when I uh, originally uh, came here as the Bishop of London, I did a bit of a tour of the city and of the school, local schools. And in fact, a school, you know, within walking distance of the city, a lot of the young people there did not see the relevance mm. of the city. And, and that disconnect, uh, is, I found phenomenal, really. Um, and I do think one of the very simple things we could be doing here is mentoring children Ooh. and young people in our school, in the, yeah, yeah. our local schools, to encourage them to see where there is opportunity Open uh, it up. around. Open it up, change the rules, make it comfortable. Stephanie, can I come on to a different area? We've had a question asked about the um, universal basic income, and the question is: is is in terms of finding um, a way forward out of the pandemic, and particularly? talking about some of the disparities, is universal basic income part of a solution? I think this is a, this is a tricky one, actually, because I do think that um, there's, there's been economists on both um, right and left who've supported versions of a universal basic income for decades, uh, going back to Mead in, James Mead in the 70s, um, but I think Milton Friedman also... Uh, at various times supported the universal basic income. So it's, it's struck lots of different people as a good idea. Um, to some extent, the, 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 a modern tax and benefit system provides a universal basic income of some kind because there is that flaw of the welfare system. Um, it's not easy. It's, it certainly doesn't feel like it's being handed out to everybody because you have to work so hard to qualify for all these benefits most of the time. But... You know, most modern economies have a form of universal basic income in the structure of their tax and benefit system. My nervousness, I mean, there's been 
heightened focus on this and quite a lot of interesting experiments in cities in the States and in Finland um, with some very interesting results that have come out of it. Um, what I worry is it quite often comes out of conversations around the future changes coming in the economy, about people being left behind, or I think we'd probably say held back. Um, and it feels like a sort of, it feels rather different from what we've been discussing here, which is kind of active inclusion of people, helping help them um, create opportunities for people to lead their lives and to, to grab opportunities. And a universal basic income might do that, but it is also just kind of throwing money at the problem. I mean, it's, it's basically saying, it's very pop, I, I think the reason I worry about it is I know how popular it is in the, the super high wealthy tech community in California. And you get this slight sense of sort of, well, we, we're a bit, we're sorry about automating all of those jobs and we're sorry about being so rich, we're going to just give you some money to make us feel better, but we're not going to necessarily kind of make a place for you in this new economy or change the way that people think about your skills relative to my skills. So that's, my, that's the sort of... I think there's lots of economic arguments for a form of universal basic income, and we can talk about how you could make a much better welfare system than you have now. But it just doesn't... I worry about sort of coming to the conclusion that that's the answer, just, you know, give people a check and hope that they go away. That doesn't feel like the right response. I'm always, I always worry about the uh, ideas <laughs> that come from um, billionaire tech people in the, sense that it, in the sense that you've just described it. It's a really easy answer to a complex problem. But, we, you know, the welfare state is, a, in my view, a wonderful thing. But it's kind of cruel at the moment. I mean, I, I find it quite hard to think about not giving money to the third child. It's not the third child's fault, is it? I find it quite difficult not giving money to people who need a home, but, and it's not their fault that aren't, that aren't enough. And actually, in the current circumstances that we find ourselves in, the welfare state that we've got isn't, is less than basic for a lot, for too mm. many people. So I'd rather that we talk about reforming the welfare state, so it actually is a welfare state, before we start, before we start talking about universal basic income largely for the reasons that you've, that you've set out, which isn't to say that we shouldn't experiment with these things. I'm always struck by people who say, you know, when, the, when, the, when you describe poverty and you, they see it and they say, well, you know, I know you weren't saying this, well, just throw money at the problem. And I say, well, if you're on welfare benefits, actually, more benefits is quite a good idea. Like when we took that, that £20 a week, are you really telling me that as taxpayers that's a bad thing? I think that's good value for my money, to be honest. And I can tell you now, the NHS is, is currently suffering from the pressures of inequality, inequity caused by poverty and an inefficient and, frankly, cruel welfare state. So it's, it's, it's all good if we can reform the welfare state before we start talking about universal basic income. Deborah, you're um, a member of the House of Lords. Do you think... I'm not the only one on this panel. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. um, I just club. wondered about your view about whether um, there is a climate for review of the welfare state at this time. And if not, where, is the, where, is, where are the things we could be doing around the issues of poverty? I found myself as uh, listening to two fascinating 
contributions, both of which I agree with. Thinking about um, the, the sort of the, well, I was going to say the other end, I mean, the, I mean the, the, the early years, and thinking about the impact of children who are not school ready. And I'm terrible at, I could never be an economist because I can never remember facts and figures, but there is some, you know, if, if a child is not school ready, they will never, ever catch up. You know, they will just be behind, and then you see their, their potential for employment and their income levels and, you know, all of the things that come with income levels, the potential for, for crime, for ill health, for family breakups, etc. And you see that um, echo down the line. So one of the things that I think we really should be investing more in is in early years and ensuring that those, those first, um, well, you know, pre-birth, pre to, to school is is absolutely you know the, the state is 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 taking care that um, that children are given this uh, as much as a level playing field in terms of getting them school ready so having the basics the basic um, language skills the basic coordination skills the basic social skills um, or motor skills all, all of those those things that, that they need to be determined um, as as school ready and I think we would see that. Um, l later on impact um, mm -hmm. on, on people's uh, e economic well-being. But, I mean, I, I'm... Uh, you know the the, the, the people the, the bits where you fall through the net. You know the idea that you you can be out of work and have no money, and there is no system, no part of the system that will make sure you leave the welfare office with enough to feed your family or to get a roof over your head. Um, I, I find it ast astonishing. You know, as somebody who who maybe grew up a little while ago, I find it astonishing that we have a system. <laughs> we we our safety net has got holes in it. And and I thought that the safety net was to catch to catch people, um, and it seems to not be doing that. Simple educational fact produced by the Sutton Trust about five years ago. They worked out that a poor kid who is in the top quartile in you know intelligence-wise in terms of ability is overtaken by a rich kid who doesn't have the same skills by the age of seven. Think about that. I think that's very worrying. And, and can I just um, move on to children that maybe are slow, slightly older, the young people, those in their sort of teenage years? I mean, uh, there's a question here about living in a very... We're in a very digital world, an immediate world, and, and you, you will know, Victor, the impact on those young people's mental health through the last two years. Um, where, where do you think there is some solution in helping them recover uh, going forward in the next few years, having been isolated, having, you know, probably spent more time on social media? So it's a very immediate world that they live in. Oh, I've, got, I've got one. I've got, I've got, I've got a teenager. I've got a teenager who experiments with me. Um, and they really are our future. I, I, I apologise to her about the environment and stuff because I say that we had a party, anybody who's my age, we had a party and now we're expecting them to go into the kitchen and wash up after us, basically. Um, they had a terrible pandemic. Children had a terrible pandemic and they're not having a great post-pandemic because we're doing things to them that create stress. So we didn't... <laughs> We adapted the education system and then we forced them to go back to a rigid one 
for which there's not a lot of evidence that it actually works. We, we're kind of forming a generation of, of, some, of kids who are cut off through no fault of their own, who are highly intelligent, who we need to solve some of the problems in society, and meanwhile, given kids. So this is what we, we need to do. We need to adopt and we need to change the way we look at children's mental health. Um, the current system, Child Adolescent Mental Health Service, in many places isn't fit for service. And we need to co-produce and, and listen to what young people need. And in that, some of the digital interventions are hugely effective for young people because um, they can relate to some of those um, areas far better than face-to-face. Than -face. It's just, just a fact. Um, we need to make all access points that young people have f trained in supporting them emotionally um, and, and in mental health terms, not just exam products and, and units of economic activity. That doesn't work. So if you're a teacher, you should be trained in mental health. If you're a nurse, you should be trained in, you know, you should, there should be no wrong door for young people, basically. Um, and I think finally, we need to make sure that um, we, we address the, the inequity. It's, it's an incredible, it, we are setting ourselves up as a society for huge failure, you know, in 10 years' time because we have withdrawn access to opportunity to a whole range of young people for no fault of their own and they are talented and angry and that's never a good thing for the social fabric. So we, we do need to address that, that inequity issue and, and the way we do that is by acknowledging that education has to change in its form and the way it's delivered. And it, we can't just go back to the, to the old system. You know, it's just not going to work anymore. Thank you. I don't know if anybody else wants to add any comments to our young people. I would just, I mean, I would have a shout out for the adult training as well, because I, I do think it's... Um, you know, at various periods in the last 20, 30 years, governments have got very excited about preschool. You know, Sure Start was actually yeah, starting sure to really start achieve things um, in the 90s. Um, certainly university education, expanding access to universities. The, the investment that was done in primary school education across the country in the 90s really did um, start to yield benefits. And yeah. we actually saw it pass through yeah. the secondary system um, in many parts of the UK, uh, including, including London. But the, no government has ever really invested and cared about adult training. And right. it, even as they, in recent governments, even as they have talked about the need for continuous learning and how we're all going to do five jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And in austerity, one of the bits of the um, education system that was most hard hit, in part because they were sort of trying to claim they were freezing the... Um, budget for I mean, holding in steady in real terms the uh, core education budget. Um, adult education, uh, I think, fell by a third in real terms, the spending, yeah, even as we were talking about continuous learning. Yeah, yeah. And I think all of that stuff is going to be much more important going forward. Absolutely agree. Um, so, so, yes, we can get very excited. I mean, I think we obviously should be worried about young people. I am, certain, I am worried about how 
going to be quite hard to pin down. Even economists who like to go through data and see after, after the fact, they say, oh, we have a natural experiment. <laughs> but of course, it is. It's yeah. a really exciting natural experiment. We're going to find out how useful those two years of education yeah. are to people. Um, and they're going out in the world, and we don't really know what, how, how it is going to affect people's ability to do certain things that they lost big chunks of their GCSE um, uh, curricula or indeed their primary school curricula. Um, but maybe that also makes the adult skills even more important. I totally agree. I mean, actually, you know, education is the best inoculation against ignorance. And an ignorant society is an unsafe one. And given that we're going to lose a load of jobs because of technology, surely we should be opening up the possibility of learning adults and it's a shame that we why is it but, think, I don't but know, I also the think there are the opportunities you know it's easy to sound Pollyannaish about this but although on the we can talk about the digital divide and that is very important but we should also accept that there is an ex that, that many forms of learning are now more accessible if you have a basic access to a computer yeah, yeah, yeah. or a phone for that matter um, so I think there's also there are there are things and we've, we've seen in the Pandemic. I mean, your point is a good one. We've gone back to an inflexible form, but we have seen the best schools actually did manage to tr have a more flexible form of learning, and they've are uh, using the, the technology in more inventive ways. True. Um, so I think there are there are opportunities that come out of it um, for for getting that kind of continuous reinvention. I have to say, one of the things I was very impressed by visiting local schools in and around London were actually they were much more flexible in their communities than I had ever seen them before in terms of caring, uh, you know, supporting the whole household unit, whatever it, whatever it was. And I've got a question here which I'm going to ask as we're sitting in this, this building. Is There's a question here about networks um, and particularly building networks in communities and the value of those. And I suppose I, so the question is to, to the panel is whether you see faith and faith networks as playing a part in, the, in our sort of recovery, uh, re, reforming as we come out of the pandemic. Deborah, do you want to go first? Well, I, I immediately think of the role of faith networks and any networks, but particularly faith networks as enabling connections into different communities. I mean, it's something we would talk about a lot. Well, we, I mean, in the Lords, it, it, it always came up when we were talking about Windrush yes. compensation, didn't it? That was, that was always the one, yeah. is how are we going to ensure that the people who are entitled to compensation know that it's available and are supported to fill in the forms? And it was always the faith networks. Yeah. Um, but as, um, as somebody who grew up you know, the daughter of a, of a vicar. Um, in fact, uh, he, he always talked about his role um, changing, uh, you, you know, uh, equalizing from a sort of a spiritual care to a, to a sort of pastoral and community care role. I mean, he, he wasn't in such an elevated role as you, Bishop Sarah, uh, but was very much, you know, a, a community, a community vicar. And, and, and the role of um, the faith leader as a spokesperson for, as a champion for, as somebody who who could speak for the community, uh, two 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 different stakeholders did did feel really important. Um, 
so, so I think I think faith networks are hugely important. I think I think faith networks that allow. Uh, so I think interfaith networks are really important and increasingly important as we as we seek to deal with with divides and 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 differences of view. Coming together through interfaith faith networks feels really important to me. Thank you. We're uh, going in this way. So yep, I, wherever you want. I, I, <laughs> church. I mean, not just. Just Church, Church of England, but mosques and um, other places. You know, there's something about religion and coming together where it's one of the few places where people get together for reasons that are neither, I think the word, pecuniary or transactional. I mean, I think that's, I think that's worth hanging on to because, in a you know, we're often driven to this sort of hyper-competitive, hyper-marketization um, of everything, including our relationships. And oddly, I just think church, we forget, it's one of the few places where that, it's not about that. So I think, I think faith networks are really important for that reason, that are a reminder of something beyond that. Secondly, the, the idea, so, and this is a thing about the leaders, the leaders of faith communities, they are nothing if they're not leading everyone, everywhere, all the time, regardless of their faith beliefs. So, so I think faith networks can be a really good thing, absolutely brilliant, but they can also be really quite destructive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it all depends on the example set by the leaders. Uh, it really is important if fish rots from the head. So they are really useful and I think the third thing is that faith communities really hold a mirror up to, to the rest of the health of society, sort of the health of us. I know some people say, well, you know, you shouldn't get involved in politics. I think by definition, faith is politics, actually, to, to a degree. You know, you, never, you, don't know, you don't know who you're electing. You have faith that they're going to do something, right? Let's not go there. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think that the faith communities... They're kind of the bedrock of what it is to be connected, really. So I think we should, we should really honour them. We should notice them. I mean, I'm not a regular, I'll be honest, I'm not a regular churchgoer, and some people say that if I walk into it, I should burst into flames. But I respect something deep that needs to be protected, particularly at times when there, when there are fundamental questions about the nature of society and what we really value, I think faith becomes really, really important. So I think faith communities are really important, but only if the leadership acknowledges, in a sense, how important they are and builds bridges and interstices and places where the boundaries between beliefs can actually be not challenged so much as understood and, and creative as opposed to misunderstood and destructive. Thank you. I do think um, what the, I, mean, I agree with everything that's been said, I think what, what, the, what the reason that faith networks can matter is going back to what I said right at the beginning, is that reminder we've had with COVID, but actually was quite clear in, also in some of the debates around Brexit and globalization, it's the importance of place and, and yeah. being situated. Yeah and policies, and I was involved in an inclusive growth commission working with lots of cities across the UK, and 
what came again and again through the discussions we had there and the meetings we had in different places around the country was was that whatever you're going to do it had to be place-based <laughs> you know going back to a little bit what i said at the beginning um and when you invest in a place and think about the net the institutions that hold a place together and will provide that kind of structure for people um you know we think about anchor institutions whether they're universities or training colleges schools and definitely um churches and mosques and other uh religious communities become part of that because as as, as victor said because they're situated because they're all about people um but i'm also reminded of one of the other events that i had the pleasure of moderating here uh, i'm just distressed to see that it might be 10 years ago or certainly quite <laughs> a long time ago um was with michael sandell the public philosopher who i'd uh, had the pleasure of being a, a teaching assistant for at Harvard, but he his book okay. "What Money Can't Buy" was was trying to speak to a sort of more general way in which we 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 were using we were too often going to economic categories and market ways of valuing things uh, in society, and that we should be even for the economy it would be better. Um, to be remembering the kind of broader social value of things and sometimes thinking of things in different ways. Like the famous example of the blood donation where people stopped doing it when they were paid mm. because it never was about that. It wasn't about being paid. It was about a, being a, a service to the community and being a good citizen. And once you start giving people a fiver for giving blood, they think, well, why would I want to do mm. that? So I think that is an, it's an important aspect of the faith networks. Thank you. We've just about come to the end of this evening, but I want to ask one question of you to give a brief response, and it's coming back to the unburying. Somebody commented that unburying the past, archaeologists inform and enrich the story of our lives. How would you like to be surprised in this chapter of the story of our city? Brief response. How would you like to be surprised in this chapter of the story of our city? <laughs> He's going to go for it. <laughs> I think it would be, I would be nice to be surprised and by people's ability, going back to something Victor said at the beginning, people not only remembering some of the good experiences they had during COVID, the more social, socially connected experiences, but then applying that in something that they did. So something that I always feel is, um, my father was in a wheelchair and my mother then did a lot of work after he died around accessibility. And of course the, the breakthrough in terms of having ramps everywhere and accessible buildings was when, when people started realizing that if you made a bus more accessible for disabled people, you also helped enormous number of old people and people with push chairs and people just were carrying a lot of shopping and it's that sort of recognition of actually what you do to uh, the world to help one set of people that you think of as being kind of disadvantaged actually could end up helping lots of other people. Thank and you know, the benefit system is another example. So I hope if people remember that lesson and actually apply it, um, I'll be happily surprised. I think that's a really good... That's brilliant. I, I think that is... So I'd be surprised because it's a, what you've... It's a brilliant example of systems thinking, and I would be surprised by the speed at which 
we adopt change that's systemic, like the example that you've just given. So the speed with which our optimism creates new hope for the people who haven't got much at the moment and can afford to be pessimistic. That's, that's what I'd be surprised by, the speed of it. Thank you, Deborah. It's such a... I mean, what I'd really like to be surprised by is the miraculous speed of recovery um, by, which the, 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 by which the city bounces, you know, well, we're not going back, are we? Bounces forward uh, to a better place. That's what I'd really like to be surprised by, but I don't think that's quite what you're asking, is it? Um, I think what you're asking is what we hope, really. What, what do we hope? Um, and I think, I think what was what was perhaps distressing is how quickly we lost the sense of unity that we had at the beginning of the pandemic. You know that sense of common cause, common experience, um, and and so I would like to be surprised by a return to a sense of what is common to us what we share, what we could share, what we owe to each other. I would like to be surprised by us returning to that strong feeling we had right at the beginning of the pandemic, that we were indeed stronger together, that we were experiencing something together, and that we would come through it together. So I'd like to be surprised by a return to that. Would you join with me in thanking our panel? <laughs>